Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today is an unusual open-ended conversation. My guest is Dr. John Brandenburg, who is a theoretical physicist, a plasma physicist, author of many books, including Death on Mars, Life and Death on Mars. He is also the author of a series of novels called The Morning Star UFO Trilogy, written under the pen name of Victor Norgard. Welcome, John. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I know you're a man of many talents, so I thought we'd keep this as a very open-ended interview because it might just go in any direction. Well, wherever you want it to go. Let's start with uh, your investigations of Mars. I think that's really fascinating. Okay, I want to give you a little bit of context. Mm-hmm. I am a plasma physicist. I My goal was to help harness fusion energy mm-hmm. back in 1975. So I arrived at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, ready and eager to begin my doctoral PhD studies and uh, learn about plasma physics and help in the harnessing of fusion, which I believe we could do in the next, I believed in, you know, in the next five years of mm-hmm. harness fusion. And um, at the time, uh, oil, the oil embargo had just ended. Uh, it was a time of um, uh, the great price increase in energy of all kinds, so this is leading to stagflation. So we... I felt very much like I was answering my nation's need for new energy sources. Yeah, I, I remember people thought we would have fusion reactors before very long. Yes, we all did. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did make substantial progress. But um, also, nothing occurs in a vacuum, especially fusion. And um, there apparently were forces at work that weren't as eager to get fusion energy as um, the rest of us were, especially myself. Um, But I was at Livermore, and at one end of Livermore, they designed hydrogen bombs. And they also did the designing of the targets for laser fusion. I was doing magnetic fusion, which was uh, more of a slow burn, uh, like a natural gas flame in a magnetic field. Um, a laser fusion was more like a miniature hydrogen bomb explosion and used that kind of physics. So um, I was there for six and a half years. Uh, I, was, I had the pleasure of serving under three brilliant scientists as thesis advisors. One unfortunately died of a heart attack when I was working with him, or he died at his son's birthday party on the weekend, unfortunately. Um, but I was just still enthralled with the idea of harnessing fusion energy. So it was a bitter disappointment to me that at, just after getting my Ph.D., um, we had the Reagan-Carter transition, and the energy crisis was kind of um, ruled as a low-priority item, and... The Cold War became the front and center as the thing, as the major effort. So 
I went from working on making a brighter, warmer future for all of humanity to working on directed energy weapons. And I came to beautiful Albuquerque to work at Sandia National Labs. And I'm trying to give you a context of the mental state I was in. At Livermore, which is near the San Francisco Bay Area, the Cold War was basically an abstraction. It was a beautiful college campus kind of atmosphere. However, when I came to Albuquerque and started working at Kirtland Air Force Base at Sandia Labs, the Cold War um, was just roiling naked around me. They had a facility where they were testing things to see if they would still be electrically operative after a nuclear war with the EMP. Uh, jet fighters were taking off every morning and flying over our office building. We were working on uh, directed energy weapons. Um, and as I was there, two really important events happened. One was the nuclear winter happened. There had been a dust storm on Mars. And the dust storm on Mars had um, reached from pole to pole and covered the planet for six months. Mm. And Carl Sagan and several other scientists had studied this remarkable phenomenon. You could have this global storm that basically covered the entire planet for six months and concluded that if we had a nuclear war on Earth, the same phenomenon could happen to so a nuclear winter. And this caused a wave of depression to pass through the staff I was working with. We were working at a nuclear weapons lab, Sandia Labs, where we just happened to be working on direct energy weapons, considered a minor detail by the lab management. And uh, my office mate at one point turned to me one day and blurted out that uh, he was going to um, uh, run home and get his family in case of a nuclear war and head for the hills to try and survive it. And But now, because of the nuclear winter, this was like November of 1983, he, <laughs> instead of uh, trying to head for the hills uh, because it was assured that more people would die of starvation and cold after the nuclear initial nuclear war than would die from the fallout and the blasts, mm -hmm. he said he was just going to climb up on the roof of his house and, with a six-pack of beer <laughs> and watch the whole thing go. And several other people had told me his was the most humorous uh, response to this, but several mm -hmm. other people had told me that this, the whole nuclear winter thing had put them into despair. Be because prior to that, if I remember correctly, people thought we could survive a nuclear war. Yes, they did. Uh, there was sort of a belief that because we were used to the magic fire, it would not harm us. Mm -hmm. We could be, we were too smart to die in a nuclear war. And I myself had decided a long time ago I did not want to survive a nuclear war, so that was just my own way of dealing with it by denial. But then you could tell some kind of crisis occurred in November of 1983, and at my church, where a number of people from Sandia Labs and other defense contractors, we hastily formed a group called Peacemaking, and we were trying to think of how to end the Cold War. What could we possibly do to lessen its because we could just feel the tension growing. And as it turns out, we found out later, there had been a major NATO exercise called Able Archer. And even though it was absolutely secret, we had come as close to a nuclear war with the Russians as we had during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was all classified. It was all secret. 
the Russians had become convinced that we were staging a Trojan horse uh, NATO exercise. And so I was just so alarmed with the idea of nuclear war and the, the presence of the Cold War around me that when I kind of went on Christmas break, I couldn't really relax. Um, I remember singing, the, hearing the song, uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem, um, you know, and thinking, well, yeah, well, Herod's troops arrived right after, you know, a little town of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And I, I found myself obsessed with death thoughts. And, um, and then on the day after Christmas, I saw coverage of this face on Mars that had been found in a place called Cydonia Mensa on Mars. And the, 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 it was a PM, a PM magazine kind of special, mm -hmm. always as it's interesting, on the day after Christmas. And it showed that they had two very good pictures of this object at two different lighting conditions. And I was just astonished because uh, I had expected when I heard about this that this was going to be an um, eggplant that looked like Richard Nixon or something like this, mm -hmm. you know, something. And th my smile had vanished as soon as I saw the thing. And I remember putting my little daughter to bed with a bedtime story, and suddenly I found myself full of hope that perhaps a big discovery like this, that there had been a dead civilization on Mars, would change, would end the Cold War. And the Russians and the United States, we would both go to war, go to, go to Mars, not go to war, instead of going to war, we would go to Mars together and investigate. And I was suddenly full of hope. I could see a mental pathway out of this kind of Mexican standoff we had become involved in. And so I was determined that when I got back to work that I would track down whoever was doing this research and find out mm -hmm. um, what was going on. When I got back to the lab after the uh, Christmas break, after New Year's, um, I was quite startled um, to find out that nobody at work had ever heard of this. And uh, in fact, some people said, Brandenburg, you're making up stories again. And um, I'd already been uh, acquired a reputation for being a tale teller and a st storyteller. Mm -hmm. uh, and fortunately, one other woman at the office complex that I worked, another woman physicist, uh, she, she, uh, she had seen it also and said, thought it was very interesting. So I, I tracked down the people who were involved in the research at Goddard Space Flight Center. And I hesitated getting more involved when I heard that they had been investigating this kind of as private individuals. Then I was contacted by a fellow named Dick Hoagland who was mm -hmm. organizing an independent Mars investigation team. Yeah in Silicon Valley. We had a bunch of scientists, a bunch of engineers, and a bunch of computer companies that were willing to give resources, and we were going to investigate. Mm -hmm. And I hesitated for several days thinking, oh dear, you know, um, um, this could be a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. And um, it was my first, I, I had started, the, the job at Sandia Labs working on directed energy weapons was my first job out of graduate school. And as usual, I had arrived as uh, thinking I was the, the next Einstein and, and uh, uh, 
ruffled some feathers, especially, you know, because the culture was different at Sandia Labs than it had been at Lawrence Livermore, which is more of a university environment where mm-hmm. Sandia Labs was run at the time by Bell Labs. It was very corporate. And, but as I became more aware of the evidence they had gathered, I suddenly decided, no, I'm going to help this investigation because I just felt so much danger of nuclear war just by accident. It was as if I was psychically picking up what was going on in the classified world. And I felt that to not investigate something that could change history at such a crucial time in human history when we could all blow each other up and all we needed to do was look at the next planet at the evidence and and have a whole new lease on life of our whole civilization. I thought, I must help this investigation so my daughter can grow up in a world free of the fear of nuclear weapons and nuclear war. So I became involved, and um, it was it was very exciting because we we didn't have an internet, but we did have phone terminals, and we could kind of have this telephone conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all really exciting. The data tapes were obtained, were run by people in Silicon Valley and verified that, yes, they showed the images that uh, DePietro and Molinar had found. And it was all real. And not only that, there was a five-sided pyramid 20 kilometers from the face. It was clear, clearly seen in the pictures. And I would show these pictures to my colleagues at work, and they were just astonished. And they said, well, it does look like it has civilization on Mars, after all. And I was also aware that this made the management at Sandia Labs a little nervous. Mm -hmm. But in any case, we pressed on. And I think we helped ease the chance of a nuclear war. Uh, we, um, we found that all of the work of DePietro Molinar could be verified. Um, I even ordered pictures from um, another site on Mars, Sight Unseen, because it was at a similar latitude, and we found out there was apparently a northern polar ocean on Mars, and the Cydonia Mensa was on the shoreline of that ocean. We looked for another site on the shoreline of the ocean, halfway around the planet, ordered pictures of it sight unseen, and found two faces at that site in what looked like urban ruins. So uh, this is a place called Utopia, later named Galaxus Chaos. Mm -hmm. I love this name. As I understand, it's thought that at some ancient time, millions of years ago, Mars had an atmosphere similar to the Earth today. Yes. It was very simple. The simplest hypothesis was that Mars was Earth-like for most of its history. Apparently, it had an ocean. It had evidence of large amounts of water flowing on its surface. Um, Some of the craters were apparently lakes. It was very kind of bizarre and very science fiction-y. And that not only was Mars like Earth, it apparently had had a biosphere with an oxygen atmosphere. That's why Mars is red. 
because its surface is highly oxidized iron in the red, uh, uh, what's called hematite, making hematite like on Earth. And uh, if you look at pictures of Earth from space, where there's desert, uh, you'll see that the deserts are bright red on Earth. So Earth is the second red planet in this solar system. Of course, we have oceans and clouds. But we finally went to a conference being held in Colorado, the case for Mars 2, and presented our results. And the Russians had a propaganda magazine called Soviet Life, and they suddenly, a month after we presented our work at Colorado, the Russians published their propaganda sheet talking about the face on Mars. So the Russians had seen it. And we had showed both governments, the United States government and the Russian government, the most terrifying sight imaginable, a devastated-looking planet that looked like it was formerly Earth-like, from which stared carved humanoid faces. It was like the end scene in the Planet of the Apes mm. where the Statue of Liberty is poking out of the sand and people, everyone realizes in the audience this terrible, strange world is actually Earth after a nuclear war. So we, I felt that we had helped. Mm -hmm. Now, what's fascinating is that this was all kind of attacked and poo-pooed by the, the usual response that I heard for a long time is that it, it was just an accident of light and shadows yes. and seen from a different angle wouldn't look like a face at all. Uh, that's right. But we had two pictures. In fact, we finally found pictures of it illuminated at morning. You could tell it was symmetrical, even though the pictures were not as, um, didn't show as much detail. So we did our job right. And... This led, I think, to, in the both the Kremlin and the White House, new thoughts, a recognition that there was no safety net for the human race, that we, if we had a nuclear war, Earth was going to look like Mars with some the Sphinx and the pyramids staring up into space. So I think we did it, and now... We have actually found out subsequently from sources, especially those involved in remote viewing, that the U.S. government had a highly classified parallel investigation to our investigation, investigating the possibility of a dead civilization on Mars. They were using remote viewing, and it was multidisciplinary. They had other aspects, too. And... Uh, including, uh, you know, precision photo interpretation. So it was very validating to discover that the U.S. government, while publicly poo-pooing the idea that this, this could be the remains of a dev civilization, was actually conducting a very resource-intensive um, investigation itself at the same time. I understand at one time, I remember meeting Richard Hoagland, and, and he was campaigning to get the U.S. government to send a Mars probe right there to the Sidonia yes. uh, site, and uh, but they refused. The uh, astronomers at NASA apparently poo-pooed the idea and said there's so many places of much greater interest. Oh, it was, uh, it was an extremely uh, interesting time. Uh, none of us had had any experience, uh, like uh, I, I'd been a creature of the U.S. government lab uh, 
research system, I was told not to ask questions about things or uh, suppose that the government had any ulterior motives to. Mm -hmm. But I discovered through this process that the U.S. government uh, could say one thing and do quite the opposite um, in its uh, own classified settings. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what it did. But the effect was the same. There was knowledge that there was the str very strong possibility, let's say, that Mars was the location of a dead civilization, and the planet somehow had gone from having an Earth-like climate to being a devastated moon-like place that could hardly sustain any kind of even bacterial life. And that was very important. What also happened then was as I was, by this time I was working in Washington, D.C., and uh, I, my work, even though I was aware of the physics of nuclear weapons from being spending next to 10 years, nearly 10 years at nuclear weapons labs, I had never really studied it or worked on it professionally. And um, I was looking at the pattern of isotopes of xenon, which is a very heavy gas used in flashbulbs. Um, and um, someone I'd mentioned, I was standing in line to a Xerox machine, which is what everybody did in those days, and uh, at, a, at, a, at Sandia Labs. And one of the, um, I was mentioning to one of the people in the line next to me, that Mars had this very unusual pattern of isotopes. It had a very strong peak of xenon-129. On Earth, xenon-129, an isotope, a stable isotope, and xenon-132 are almost exactly equal. But on Mars, there was two and a half times more xenon-129. This was different from any other planet. It was different from the solar wind. It was different from the moon rocks. It was different even from Jupiter. Everything else matched an Earth-like pattern except Mars in the solar system. And I mentioned this to this fellow, and he said, could you let me see that? And I showed him the book where the data, and he, his face suddenly lost all of its um, composure. And he said, someone nuked them. And I was stunned at this. At, at Sandia Labs, by the way, they did have a department at the time that monitored the atmosphere for um, signs of nuclear activity, nuclear tests. And apparently he was part of that group that monitored the atmosphere. And he basically was telling me there was nuclear weapons signature in the Martian atmosphere. Um, I was quite astonished. I didn't know what to think since I knew very little about the details of that. So I basically confided this with some other members of the investigation, and we did not talk about it, simply because I didn't understand it, neither did anyone else. Uh, later in Washington, D.C., I worked at a place where uh, I worked just down the hall from people who did atmospheric uh, assays for isotopes. After, let's say, North Korea sets off a nuclear, what looks like a nuclear weapon, they would fly airplanes over um, uh, out in the South China Sea or someplace and pick up traces of isotopes and then figure out if they had actually set off a nuclear weapon. And I showed this to various people who 
worked with me who were experts on this, and they agreed, oh, yes, this looks like nuclear weapon signature. And I finally found in the open literature discussions of this, the difference between um, xenon from a just a nuclear reactor, slow neutrons, and xenon's uh, atoms from a very fast, intense, high-energy neutron event, like a hydrogen bomb explosion. They're quite different. Mm. And forensics can be done on this. So when I finally identified this and found sources in the open literature, I informed, uh, we were that by that point, we were aware that the U.S. government had an investigation of Mars going. And so we informed them through channels that we had found nuclear weapon signature in the Martian atmosphere, massive nuclear weapon signature. And I understand we're talking maybe thousands of nuclear bombs. Yeah, so required. the equivalent of almost all the nuclear weapons on Earth detonated at once on Mars. And so we informed the Pentagon that we had found this. And they sent somebody to receive our data. And we gave him a briefing. And he took careful notes and looked very serious. And then he left. And six months later, they sent back word, basically saying, why don't you go publish this? which was quite astonishing to us. In other words, they wanted this to come out. Mm -hmm. They had decided this was not classified. They wanted the, apparently, the, the, the presence of nuclear weapons signature in the Martian atmosphere means there are two independent lines of evidence to suggest intelligent activity on Mars. One was the ruins of what looked like massive archaeology, uh, the other was this nuclear pattern of nuclear weapons uh, residues in the atmosphere. And it looked like someone had targeted what appeared to be, appeared to be a rather primitive civilization on Mars that made massive monuments with nuclear weapons dropped from space because the hotspots for uh, nuclear uh, activity in thorium and, and uh, potassium, uh, there were no craters at the hotspots. Apparently, the whatever had happened had been a mid, an airburst. It had happened in midair. Thousands of, you know, a million megatons going off. A bomb as big as the Empire, a hydrogen bomb as big as the Empire State Building. Two of them dropped onto Mars at two different sites. And going off apparently 20 miles up in the atmosphere had destroyed Mars and it completely destroyed the biosphere that had existed there. Someone wanted Mars to be killed and to never be able to rise again. And the problem I had with this was how to how to tell people this. Um, and I, myself, began to fall into um, a, what I recognized as signs of a clinical depression. Mm 
start having nuclear weapons nightmares, which I hadn't had since I was a child. And so I, not knowing uh, what to do, and I'm just an Episcopalian. I'm, I consider myself religious. I think I'm, a lot of young people today don't remember, of course, what no. it was like when I was a child. We were taught, taught, you know, if there's a nuclear explosion, put your head down under your desk. Yes. Things My like father that. built a fallout shelter in our home. Yeah. People were afraid of nuclear war. We grew up with that fear. Absolutely, we did. Yeah. And uh, no place was it more acute than when I was working at Sandia Labs, and this is what stimulated me to join this Mars investigation. And so um, I... I decided to write a book. I decided to focus on cosmic good. So I wrote a book called Cosmic Jesus. I, I must, I, I'm very fond of the title and it was about, um, uh, getting, uh, for, for, I spent, uh, in my early twenties, I was a Christian fundamentalist because I, my parents had joined a Christian fundamentalist. So they'd been Presbyterians and they joined the fundamentalist church and, um, I was their loyal firstborn. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I joined them, and it was um, it was all a mad adventure. But I did learn a lot about the Bible. I will say. Uh, imagine just receiving your draft card, and you're a low draft number, and have to go up for your physical and your A one, and then finding out that the world's going to end, and any day now, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse mm-hmm. are going to ride. And as I told uh, one person in my church, uh, I said. Not only are the four horsemen going to ride uh, soon, they're going to ride right over me because I'm going to be in the army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, I I uh, found that uh, if you study the Bible in Greek, the word that is translated as world often in the New Testament is the word cosmos. So when Jesus says to the people, go out into all the cosmos and preach the gospel to every creature, he means the whole universe, not just earth. They had a perfectly good word for Earth, G, which is where we get geology. And so I, I focused myself on something positive, mm-hmm. that, um, that the um, human race and uh, Jesus and everything was, all belonged in the cosmos and everything was going to be okay. There. I focused myself on that kind of idea. Then I decided to write my book, Death on Mars. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason was, uh, with the rising power of, uh, of uh, the People's Republic of China, we were once again threatened with a Cold War standoff between two nuclear-armed powers, and I certainly didn't want a repeat of that nonsense. So I decided to write this novel, uh, not a novel, rather a book. Mm-hmm. It's a well, non- non-fiction. It's non-fiction, you know, yeah. it's all... All the frame numbers from all the NASA pictures are there. Anybody who wants to verify these things can verify them. All of the um, isotopes uh, studies are referenced. It's a scientific book. And uh, I I also um, took the tack, well, suppose it was a natural nuclear reactor. On Earth, we had natural nuclear reactors. In rich uranium deposits, they were invaded by groundwater, and they get a nuclear reactor going. And perhaps that's what happened on Mars. But when I went to conferences and presented that idea, 
uh, people liked the idea, but some other people said uh, who said the xenon spectrum is wrong, and besides, there's no craters. If you had a natural nuclear reactor that blew up in, uh, on Mars, there would be big craters, and there's no craters at the radioactive hotspots. So, um, apparently... There was a dead humanoid civilization. There's a dead humanoid civilization on Mars. Uh, it looks it looks as though it was primitive, and then it also looks appears that someone came someone else came along and dropped two large hydrogen, very large hydrogen bombs on Mars, destroying the planet's biosphere. And leaving only uh, kind of a moon-like planet with the um, um, archaeology preserved on Mars. So that's a. This is a sad thing to find. But I've gotten over that and decided no, it means it's it's happy news for us because suddenly we understand that the universe can be a rough place. And the risk we ourselves face. Yes. And also, yes, that it's quite possible we'll blow ourselves up. Just like the Martians did not blow themselves up, apparently. Somebody else did that for them. But we have to guard against blowing ourselves up. Why don't we go investigate Mars as a united, uh, like I proposed, the space station consortium, which includes Russia, all going up to Mars together to investigate this. So, um, I think this is a marvelous opportunity for the uh, United States government to introduce the public to the reality that we are not alone in the universe, but do so in a way that's very non-threatening. Well, it's... (sighs) The planet's dead because of a nuclear holocaust, but at least... The Martians, the, 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 the people who were living on Mars, they're all dead now. They're not a threat to us. And, and I gather these uh, explosions, you could trace them back uh, to some period, maybe 250 million years ago. Yes, yes. Now, there's interestingly enough, there was an event on Earth called the Great Permian Extinction that happened about the same time. And the Great Permian Extinction not only wiped out like 95% of the living things on Earth, 90% of the ocean life died. Whereas when the, uh, like when the dinosaurs were wiped out, the oceans were pretty much unscathed. Uh, the dinosaurs, um, had a bad day, you know, a couple bad years, but uh, in fact, they all disappeared after that. And only mammals, uh, survived and a few, uh, very adaptable reptiles. But um, during the Great Permian Extinction, this planet almost turned into another Mars, and it appears to have happened about the same time. Mm-hmm. So this, there's a phenomenon in uh, science called Fermi's Paradox, and first pointed out by the great physicist Enrico Fermi, mm-hmm. and that the universe is paradoxical in that since we know that even even back in the 50s, they knew that the human race existed, was very noisy and badly behaved. They'd just gone through World War II and um, put out a lot of radio noise. 
and also expanded into all available possible places to live. So he said, where are they? The universe should be a noisy, crowded place because we're a fairly recent uh, species. The, uh, the, uh, the, the age of the universe, even in those days, was known to be at least uh, 10 billion years old. And he said, uh, the Earth is 5 billion. So that means there was a whole generation of other planets that could have evolved, had life on them. Um, people had just seen uh, the V2 invented, which was a spaceship. So they knew we could travel outside the atmosphere. And so the idea that uh, other species would have expanded and uh, been fruitful and filled the universe and then been sending out all sorts of radio noise for uh, political advertisements, soap commercials, um, who knows what. And he said the fact that the universe is very quiet is paradoxical. Mm -hmm when the rest of the universe should be full of people like us who are noisy. Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately on Mars, we may have found out the reason for Fermi's paradox. There are forces out there, intelligent forces, which wipe out primitive civilizations. That if you're a truly smart civilization, you, you're quiet. But, of course, we've already ourselves sent out all these radio signals, so there's no way we can call them back. We've announced our presence to the rest of the universe. So, um, because of Fermi's paradox, Mars makes sense. The human race is here on Earth. It's very noisy. It's expanded. It's going into space. It's expanding. Yet on Mars, there's apparently a place where they had a humanoid-like race, um, but it was wiped out by somebody else. Mm -hmm. And um, perhaps that is the general pattern of, of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, that's which is noisy gets squelched. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that we must become spacefaring. We can't call back our radio signals. We must... Uh, we must play the game now. We've been invited to the um, to this um, party, mm -hmm. and we might as well just walk, march through the door and act like we own the place. Because um, if we try to hide from the rest of the universe, we'll end up like Mars eventually. And so, um, I'm very glad I wrote the book. I hope it has uh, reduced the, co the um, possibility of nuclear war like between mm -hmm. China and the United States. And I hope that it encourages the human race to become spacefaring. Mm -hmm. And on Mars, we, the U.S. government has the opportunity to introduce the public into the fact that we are not alone in the universe. But the faces depicted on the carvings on Mars look rather human. These people didn't have bug eyes or fangs or antenna. They look pretty much like human beings. So that the human race is a natural 
thing in the cosmos. We're not alone. And the people we found on Mars are not a threat to us. Mm-hmm. We, are, uh, we are right now not really in a threatened state. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's very important. Um, somebody uh, told me once that the uh, U.S. government feels like it's in the um, situation of being pilot and co-pilot of an airliner, and one of its engines has quit. And it doesn't want to tell the passengers that one of the engines has quit, that we are in possible great danger. Because they don't need to know. It's not going to help the pilot and co-pilot get the plane onto the ground where it can be repaired. So they basically keep quiet about it. Now we can say, oh, one of our engines has quit, but we've got to restart it again. We're fine. And we have to land just to investigate what happened. So I think this could lead to a new space age and to the human race becoming spacefaring and that this can have a happy ending for the human race. I, to, to me, the happy ending for the human race is the future looks like Star Trek. Well, in your novels, the uh, Morning Star UFO yes. series that you wrote under the pen name Victor Norgard. Victor Norgard, yes. You explore the uh, possibility <laughs> of uh, what it would be like for the uh, human race to uh, enter into uh, a spacefaring condition and interact <laughs> with other species. Yes, I do. I uh, One of the uh, things that happened to me in Washington, D.C. is I... Worked with a lot of interesting people, and I worked in places where called skiffs, where everything could, you know, classify. You could talk, you could leave classified papers out on your desk, and you, in other words, you you had security clearances. Yeah, we all had security clearances at high level, and um, uh, one of the interesting things about working in such a place is that you have people there who have been have security, special access to a lot of interesting information. And they occasionally casually talk about it around the coffee machine or in the hall before and after meetings. And so you start, um, you start realizing, oh, part of the U.S. government is dealing with this reality of us not being alone in the universe already. And so, uh, when I left this one place to go teach down in Florida at the Kennedy Space Center, I asked my superior's permission. I said, uh, you know, I've heard some very interesting wild stories here around the coffee machine. I was wondering if I could write some science fiction and kind of put these things in the science fiction. And they said, and to my surprise, they, they thought this was, that this would be fun. And they said, as long as it's labeled science fiction, John, and why don't you write it under a pen name? And um, we'll read it, because <laughs> we always like your reports. And so uh, I, um, um, I ro- wrote a novel called uh, Morningstar Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up, where I took the idea that um, there was a UFO cover-up, and that the U.S. government had reacted to this by engaging with one group of uh, aliens called the Greys and signing a secret treaty with them. 
and um, that there were other species, including some uh, that were actually very human, out there, but that we had tried to get, enter into this relationship with this one group of aliens to uh, you know, learn more about each other. And, yeah. and uh, unfortunately, in the novel, the history of this is that this did not go well. The um, and so what I what I tried to explore was the possibility that we were in a kind of secret relationship with a extraterrestrial species, and that things were not going well. And um, the heroine asks the hero, she says, "Are things in a snafu state?" And he says. We passed out of snafu 10 years ago, and we're far, far beyond FUBAR now. Anyone who can is familiar with the military can tell you what those acronyms mean. And so I wanted to look at kind of almost a worst case, but still have it turn out well. And I don't, I don't want to spoiler, uh, do spoilers, but I will say that uh, these two uh, women, of course, they're beautiful, they're news anchors, and they, they uh, by their courage and determination, uh, they are kind of the Woodward Bernstein of the new millennium. They take leaked documents and um, other things that they find out, and they managed to bring down the UFO cover-up. They forced the Congress, the House and the Senate, to conduct special investigations and have the um, fact that there is this secret treaty relationship. And you must understand, in the U.S. Constitution, if you're going to negotiate a treaty with another nation, terrestrial or not, it doesn't matter. The U.S. Senate means the U.S. Senate demands advice and consent on this process. They must import, they must uh, confirm the ambassadors doing the negotiating. Um, they must um, ratify the final product. Um, and they must have oversight of the negotiating process. You can't have secret treaties in supposedly according to the U.S. Constitution, and yet in the novel, that's just what they have. So when the UFO cover-up collapses in my novel, there's a constitutional crisis. And um, and what happens in my novel, without trying to spoil anything, is, is there is an attempted coup d'etat mm -hmm. by the secret government who hopes to have with support of the aliens. They hope the aliens will show up in the skies over Washington, D.C. to back up their tanks uh, that uh, uh, they will produce shock and awe. Unfortunately... It's very cloudy. No one can see the aliens. Mm -hmm. And so, just like any great plan, especially one that's evil, all sorts of things go wrong. I mean, <laughs> in my novel, good is, is only um, barely competent. <laughs> Well, let me, if I but, may. But evil is also, uh, suffers from great incompetence also. Let, let me step back a little bit, because when we talk about your novel, naturally it's hard to know what, how, what percentage of it is derived <laughs> from stories you heard uh, around the uh, coffee table in, in, in near the skiff. Uh, well, I would say 
a large amount of what I put in there mm-hmm. is stuff I overheard. Uh, did I hear it clearly? I don't know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, um, um, I was, let's say I'm connecting dots mm-hmm. and trying to uh, make a, a lodge something, a plot that would logically make sense. Yeah. Uh, given the presently understood laws of physics we have. And um, um, so I, I tried my best to kind of uh, take some of the interesting things I had heard and weave a story mm-hmm. about them, uh, paint, uh, use them as kind of dots on a painting and then paint a whole painting around them. And uh, it was great fun. I, I, I found out from doing this that I really enjoy fiction writing. Yeah, you seem to be a very gifted storyteller. Well, thank you. I'm part Irish. <laughs> but let me, let me step back again, though, yes. with you, John, because I haven't mentioned to our viewers, but you've co-authored uh, several papers with uh, Chris Hardy, who has been interviewed on this channel. Oh, well, she's a, a wonderful... Uh, in fact, I'm going to link to one of her interviews right now for viewers who may be interested. I never did interview her, however, on her interest in... Uh, the Anunnaki, and oh, yes. and, I, and I believe you actually wrote a foreword to one of her books on on that topic. Yes. At the time, I felt a little skittish. I didn't know that it would be okay to get into that material back then. Uh, but it has to do with the idea that we humans were ultimately genetically engineered by uh, uh, other beings who were who were identified as gods by the ancient yes. people. And uh, this is also plays into your novels. Oh, well, it does. Um, in the, I, all I can say is I sat down to lunch with a few of the people I used to work for in Washington, D.C., and they had actually read my novel and liked it a lot. And they said, John, how did you, how did you figure out some of that stuff? And I said, I just guessed. And they said, well, you're a good guesser. What I was doing was just connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a, a rocket scientist. And, and um, so I... You may have a touch of clairvoyance. I've, well, anyone who writes science fiction is tapping into a kind of clairvoyant vibe, let's say. Mm-hmm. There's so many places where science fiction has turned out to be prophetic. Um, you know, I, I I don't even need to go into that yeah. because it's everyone many, knows. Many, many examples. Many, many examples. Science fiction novels that And describe, in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, because I wanted to tap into that myself, I decided to write a novel about mm-hmm. this. Um, and the um, I actually wrote a prequel to the trilogy, the, the the collapse of the UFO cover-up, which has its subtitle "Absolute Secrecy Creates Absolute Power," and I I became very aware of the very corrosive effect of absolute secrecy on people and organizations. Um, uh, maybe maybe these things have changed for the better. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've been in Washington D.C. But uh, I also wrote a novel called uh, about a big asteroid. And uh, what they euphemistically uh, refer to in the book as an asteroid encounter. 
<laughs> and the book, uh, that book is somewhat more lighthearted. Mm-hmm. It's a, um, it's a, it, uh, both, I tend to write kind of dark comedies. Let's say Morningstar Pass is quite dark in tarts. Uh, more, uh, the asteroid 20-2012 Sepulveda, which is about the accidental discovery of an asteroid by a Mexican-American um, astronomer named Alicia Sepulveda. She sees a, notices a little streak in a picture of a galaxy she's observing um, and discovers it's a new asteroid and names it after her family, of course. And um, the Air Force takes the numbers that she very carefully worked out for its orbit and put it in their computer and discover, bingo, it will hit the Earth in a year. And it's a large asteroid. It's as big as the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. So this is a, plunges the Earth into a secret crisis because the governments keep the knowledge of the asteroid a secret as long as they can uh, to prevent the public from panicking. Uh, what happens, though, is the governments themselves panic. And began to behave rather irrationally, and um, so. Uh, but it's as I said, it's more of a um, a lighter comedy. For one thing, the protagonist, uh, the the or the antagonist, is a big rock. <laughs> but, but since you're a scientist yes. as well as a novelist, I have to assume that when you put these novels together, you're really playing with possible scenarios. I am. Because I looked at some of the publicly um, discussed methods for dealing with large asteroids on a collision course with Earth and decided they were inadequate. So in the novel, they, they have to try a f- like five different things. Finally, uh, the first uh, four things they try do not work. And they are finally in a nearly panic state themselves, the scientists, because... Uh, they have to basically um, make up an experiment that and test it on this asteroid as it's on a collision course with Earth. Um, but since it's a prequel, I will. The spoiler is that they do stop the asteroid. Uh, they um, they break it up near Earth, so it ends up over L.A., uh, showering L.A. with big chunks of uh, rock. Which then are, have to be taken out by any, by Patriot missiles and mm. uh, laser guided cannon shells and things like this. And, um, uh, one of the, uh, humorous aspects is that the, uh, the two, the same two women are, are, the, are the same two women are in this novel and their boss uh, keeps asking him if they want to buy gold. Because by that time, everybody knows the asteroid is coming and the price of gold is getting higher and higher. And uh, they said, well, uh, since we're here in L.A., you know, at Ground Zero, we're not really interested in what the price of gold is. And um, they, <laughs> the day after when the asteroid has been stopped and there's not a pane of window glass left in Los Angeles, but... The world and everything else has survived, and they, uh, they're they talking to their boss, and he sounds rather glum, and they said, you know, his name is uh, Manfred, and they, they call him Manny, and they say, Manny, you sound so sad. What, the world has been saved. And he says, 
the price of gold is tanked. <laughs> I've just lost 200 grand. <laughs> and things like that actually happen. People bet on disasters and then the disasters are, uh, you know, taken care of and uh, people then lose money because they invested in gold or silver or something like this that tanks. Yeah. Well, John Brandenburg, this has been a fascinating discussion. We've covered a lot of territory. A lot of territory. I so appreciate your coming to Albuquerque and it's being been with such me. a pleasure and honor and to be here. You're welcome back. I you know, hope to have more discussions with you in the we future. We can discuss my gem unified field theory. Yeah, we haven't even started. That's on that. right. Which I believe it or not, Mars was kind of a diversion for me. Mm -hmm. I I always felt my great life's work was going to be the unified field theory of Einstein, the unifying gravity and electromagnetism. He didn't believe in quantum mechanics, but I do. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, I, we can talk about that some I other time. I look forward to having that conversation in the future. Great. I, I so much look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with me, and thank you for being with us. Thank you.